Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. Today's Thursday, March 5th, 2009. We have some fun guests tonight, uh, Diana Kimball and Alex Lovett, who were student interns on the book Born Digital. Welcome to both of you. Thanks for having us. Are you there, Diana? Yes, I'm here. Thanks for having me, Steve. No, most welcome. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this, and uh, I'm sure glad that you were both able to take the time. So, uh, uh, for those of you who were in the Illuminate room, just a quick overview and introduction. Uh, I like the uh, wide view, which allows you to see more of the chat. And with a small group like this, I don't know if we'll have a lot of chat, but if you go up to the third icon from the left at the top of your screen, uh, you can select the window layout and click to wide layout. Um, this is also a nice small group, so if you have a question, please feel free to raise your hand. You do that by clicking on the hand icon with the green arrow up, and it's down at the bottom of the participants window. And I'm going to demonstrate. I'm going to click it right now, and you see a number goes next to my name, and it says I'm interested in saying something. I can click it off. I can also use the uh, small smiley face emoticon to indicate I'm happy about something, or I can clap, or I can show confusion, or I can voice my displeasure. You can see those icons uh, down there, the four emoticons together. Uh, if you think you'd like to ask a question of Diana and Alex, uh, go ahead and go run the Tools Audio Audio Setup Wizard to make sure that the system recognizes your mic, or you can ask a question in the chat. So, um, Diana and Alex, would you uh, uh, let's start with you, Diana? Uh, would you tell me uh, briefly what the book Born Digital is about? So, Born Digital was an attempt by two law professors, John Paul Freiner's Gasser, John Paul Free spoke at uh, Future of Education a few weeks ago, um, to really provide a manual for parents and teachers and um, mentors of children who've been born into a digital world. So while they wrote the book with a strong law background, um, a lot of their recommendations are really practical. And one of the things I most appreciated in working on the book is that they they know that adults are smart. <laughs> they don't. They don't treat uh, their audience like they're, you know, not in the know or like they should know these things. They make it very clear that um, this is just a set of tools that is, you know, when you grow up with them, they seem more obvious to use, and um, that that that's something that can be learned, and that actually learning it from your children or students is a great way to get closer with them at the same time as understand the tools themselves better. So Alex, can you tell us a little bit about the role that uh, the roles that you and Diana and others played in the creation of the book? Oh yeah, sure. Um, so Diana was on the project way before I was. Um, she started the boat, I'd say, a year and a half before me. I'm actually only a recent uh, contributor. Um, and so Diana did a lot of the research. Um, she would go through books, uh, help with the editing. And um, 
so essentially, she was on the book production, and I'm on the book back end. So what I'm doing right now is uh, producing media for the blog. Um, what uh, her son John wanted to do was uh, have extra extra production actually done by digital natives um, as kind of a supplement to the book alongside the blog. So Alex, would you pull up that uh, URL, the link to, to the site, and we can put it in the chat here and also uh, so it's available for people later. And we can also actually bring it up and a little bit of a web tour. But does that include, I'm trying to remember the name of the, the ballad uh, of the young man who was uh, sued by the RIAA. Is that the kind of material you're looking to put up? Yeah, actually, um, that was the bell of Zach McCune, um, who was a student who got sued by the RIAA. And it was a summer they did an interview series with him. And so right now I'm going through every chapter of the book and just making a short video that kind of summarizes points and brings up new topics that have come up since the publication. Yeah, that was a question I wanted to ask, Diana. In, in the book, John says, uh, you know, we know that by the time this book comes out in print, there are going to be things that are different than, than we wrote about. Um, have you noticed some of those differences already? When the book came out, you know, it was, it was published right before the election. Um, and certainly was finished, it was finished well before the election. So John and Orr were able to forecast some of how uh, youth would get involved with the election campaigns online, but certainly they weren't able to sort of fully predict the magnitude. So that was really exciting to see because it was a really great point in time where the technology was ready and the generation was ready and there was a kind of figure they could rally around that embraced both that generation and the technology. But one of the things I think is most interesting in the book is this idea that it's not actually a generation, it's a population because you it's hard to develop, the, the skills and tools aren't natural to you if you don't have them around and that's purely a function of whether the technology is around for you or not. So while, you know, while many young students um, in the U.S. have access to the internet and computers in their homes and at school and in libraries, uh, that's not true everywhere in the world. And so I think one of the things that will change, that changes every day is just as uh, the story isn't over, even in terms of getting basic access, um, even in places in the U.S. So, you know, a, a new sort of mini generation is born digital every day because the, the technology comes and, well, it doesn't come, people get it. You know, it doesn't, it's not this wave that overtakes, um, overtakes the city. It's something that slowly sort of emerges in people's homes and schools. So I think that the the predictions they make and sort of uh, policies they suggest and strategies they recommend do apply in each of those situations. But, um, you know, the, the internet that each of those many populations enters into is going to be the current internet. It's got, not going to be the internet from four months ago. So those, that, that dynamic is always changing and affecting the way things go.
Yeah, I think that that contribution of population versus generation was really significant, at least for me. And and I picked up the book because we were doing that interview. Um, and I, I I have to admit I came at the book because of the title, a little bit thinking it was a knockoff book. You know, there's um, the Don Tapscott book, which is a grown-up digital. And so I hadn't heard of Born Digital, and I picked it up thinking, oh, this is just one more. And I, the interesting aspect for me has been the degree to which this book has become my touchstone book. Because there's so much in here that's said that seems to me to be so significant that I'm now quoting it everywhere I go. Are, are you finding other people... Alex, are having a reaction to the book that's that positive, where people are, are saying to you, this is really an important book? Uh, in the news, we've actually had a lot of publicity for the book, um, but I haven't heard much about people comparing it to other texts that are on the market right now. Um, but I think just because of the influence that uh, especially John Alfred has had in the past. Um, and since it's coming out of Harvard, that uh, not only that, but also, of course, as you mentioned, uh, the actual content of the book, those are the two things that are very pushing it ahead as a uh, primary text in the field. So, Alex, I want to ask you to talk a little bit about each of these sites. I'm bringing up what's called a web tour. And this is the first link. Um, and would you tell us about uh, what we find here? Uh, yeah, so this is the Digital Natives blog. And every week we have, uh, I believe it's between one and three uh, blog posts. And as you can see, it varies on the topic every week. Um, so the first one we have right now is about digital piracy. And just scroll down. Uh, see many, many different examples of uh, particularly digital natives' personal account uh, and experience with dealing uh, with growing up in the digital world. And actually, if you go back into the blog uh, archives, I was looking at all the blog posts this afternoon, and it's, it's really interesting how you can the, see that there hasn't been uh, an emphasis on different times per topic. It's just that over time, uh, new new approaches to each section that we talk about on the blog, uh, there's been an evolution of thought about it, or new things have come up, and uh, it's, it's constantly evolving and constantly uh, constantly uh, what do I want to say? Uh, it's just constantly relevant uh, as time goes on. Good. I'm going to bring the second link up now. Uh, Ed made a comment in the chat uh, really agreeing with the um, concept of populations and, and again just reiterating you know, just what, I, what a significant concept that seems to be. Maybe I pulled up the same site there and I have the same one. Actually, I can click on the Digital Natives website here, can I, Alex, and it'll take me to that second link. Can you tell us what's here? 
So not only this is just the jump page uh, for everything on the Tinkle Negative Project, so it makes it a bar really at the end of the book. Um, and then it also has information about the team, uh, various uh, sub-projects that we've done, so you can click on video, I believe you can see some of the video projects that were already done. Um, and of course it's kind of information. Uh, it also links to a bunch of networks on the bottom. Uh, so you can see you know, the Twitter feed for the different natives, uh, which highlights all the blog posts every week. Or you can go on the YouTube channel and uh, watch all the videos that we've put up. Uh, so it's very minimalistic on page for the blog that in the book, which have all the information but I'm just going to click through to the wiki page since you had linked it in so that uh, people can see it in the, in the, here in the room and the replay. And who's contributing to the wiki? Well, the wiki originally started as a, a an information page just to kind of uh, introduce people who are interested in the topic and explain the core concepts. So if you actually scroll to the bottom uh, to the introduction of the life of digital natives, you can see that there are many different uh, topics that are explained and you click on one of the links and it gives you a really in-depth explanation of, of, each, uh, of each section uh, with, with accompanying links that uh, link out to other websites. Uh, with even more uh, statistics, information, opinions, etc. So, Diana, I've got to ask you a question that that, uh, that just keeps fascinating me. You worked on a book. Obviously, there's a lot of material here that's related to the web. Would you read this book yourself? Is this the kind of thing you would pick up, or would you go to the web? Not only would I read it, I just finally bought it the, lot, the other week. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is the kind of thing where I would, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm still a student. I still read books for school. Sometimes I read them the first chapter on Google Books before deciding whether to buy it or not. But with something like this, what I appreciate about it, even for myself, is that it's really a, a manual, right? So. And it's it's not just a set of instructions. It's something where the stories that are in it um, will like give you different insight at different times. So when I started, you know, I read a bunch of these chapters before they were published to do the line edits and add resources and add my thoughts to them. But uh, looking at them now, it's it's totally different, especially because I just recently started working as a teaching assistant for. Uh, a distance education class at Harvard, and my perspective on what it means to be a digital native is completely different now that I'm in this other role. Uh, it's not just about who you are. Everyone plays different roles in life, and there are different things I want to get out of being a teacher than I want to get out of being a student. And it also makes me think much more acutely about you know how to how to really use these tools to make things better, rather than just deprecate them. So um, I definitely got a lot of insight just from reading the rereading the introduction from a new perspective, and I think that that will be true as people who are digital natives now move into new roles because you can't just draw on your own experience and be you know a magically great parent or teacher 
right off the bat. Um, and you know, by the time most of us are parents or teachers, like the day, the book will probably be really out of date. But the ideas, I think, are so timeless. Just that the the best thing you can do to understand how things are at any given point in time is to talk with the people who are experiencing it. And um, I I know that whenever I've spoken with parents about the book, they always sort of off and say, so you really expect us to, you really expect us to talk with our kids, like my kids hate me or my kids never talk with me. Like that may be true, but I still think it's worth trying and showing some curiosity about, you know, the, the online worlds they live in because that's, it's not a fake world. It's a real place where their major social experiences and learning experiences are really taking place. So that's interesting, Diane. I think you're, I would agree with you, and I, I think I really liked the approach, and, and it can serve as a model. And it's interesting to me that when I was doing my research for the interviews, I, the first place I wanted to go was to YouTube uh, to find video and audio, because I, I tend to have time where I want to listen to things. So it was funny, I actually, I actually got into the material primarily through video and audio before I was a reader. And I've always been a reader, but it's interesting how these technologies have changed that for me. How much time, Alex, do you feel like you spend reading versus now looking at other kinds of media? That's a really difficult question. Um, I'd say that I definitely spend more time online, um, but recently over the past couple of years, I've been trying to read more and more, um, and I still have a stack of about 20, 25 books that I haven't been able to get through. Um, but I mean, it, it's hard just because as a full-time student who also has a job, um, I, I have to balance going to class, going to work, and then also find free time to read or free time to go online. And since a lot of socialization for me is online anyway. Usually that's where I go first. Um, but I definitely try to read as much as possible. Uh, and I'm actually getting through Digital Natives as well as another book right now. So I think that in an everyday context, the internet is very the first place I'll go. Just because I always check email and then I go on Google Reader, check out a few blogs. Um, but it's not like I'm just going to abandon reading books. So Diana, in the book it talks about uh, grazing, drilling down, and then the feedback loop. Do you find that that pattern fits for you? Definitely. I mean, I, I've i been trying this year to write my senior thesis. I'm a history student, which seems a little bit anachronistic at this point, but I suppose history always is. Um, so it's been really interesting, though, because I can't, I have a lot of trouble just reading a book straight because I want to get the context and I want to, you know, I want to disseminate the parts into categories. And so I find myself literally uh, transcribing entire passages of books just so that I can cut and paste them into smaller text files so that I can then move around my screen. Um, 
and then decide which one, you know, decide which topics are more important and do further searches on them. And it's also been really funny because as I've tried to do this massive writing project, uh, all of the newspapers I've been using as sources are available as uh, like search engines um, through my university. So I can search, you know, newspapers from 100 years ago, just like Google today, and get back a PDF of a newspaper article. So it's actually been kind of remarkable because my online habits have influenced this totally not online thing, um, just in the way I structure information and the way I uh, the way I investigate problems. Um, I also recently started keeping a personal wiki just because I, you know, I that's the way that my mind automatically organizes information and that's it would be kind of a shame if I didn't store it that way. It took me about two way. years to sort of be brave enough to start editing wikis. And then once I did, it was as though I had discovered the mother load. You know, I, it, it worked for me. Everything about it made sense. Interesting to hear you describe the same thing. Uh, Alex, what other technologies, do you feel like there are technologies that really work for you? Is it video? And, and do you think that um, there's value in recognizing the different ways in which people respond to different technologies? I wouldn't say for me necessarily that, that video or audio um, is really preferential over text, um, but I can't really speak for kids much younger than me. I know that obviously YouTube is extremely popular, but the, the trend that I've seen is that as, as the hardware becomes more available and the software becomes easier to use, you see a lot more cultural production, not in terms of books, but in terms of video and audio like podcasts. Um, so it's it's definitely interesting um, to note that as it's easier to use technology, um, kids are starting to be able to jump on that technology to create things like video to speak to friends or just voice their opinion online, which is which is not something you'd see when Diane and I were kids, for example. So, I mean, this is an intriguing thing for me, which is, you know, I'm, I'm not sure, that even if my own children, that they respond in equivalent ways to the new media or the new technologies. And do we run the risk, Diana, that there will be some who, for whom this is just not their cup of tea and that they're going to get a little bit lost now? You know, we always run that risk when an entire set of people becomes enamored with a new technology just because of what it can do and forgets that different people learn different ways. I mean, I certainly, I barely listen to any um, any audio or watch any video on the internet just because um, I'm, I'm too impatient for it. It, you know, it doesn't go at my speed. And so I end up almost only reading things on the internet, which is kind of funny. Um, and so, you know, not everybody learns visually, um, and not everybody learns textually. But the, the nice thing is that um, on the internet, all of those forms can coexist. And that's one of the things we've really tried to do with the Digital Natives blog and the associated videos and everything is that you really need a constellation of, um, pro, you know, m media 
product to make sure you're hitting the right notes with the widest range of people. Um, the whole idea behind getting the, the videos for each chapter of the book was that um, John Palfrey and Urs really recognized, okay, kids almost certainly aren't going to read this, plus it's kind of directed at parents. However, is there any way we could sort of boil down the important messages from each chapter and make that into something they might want to watch? So all of the text associated with the book still exists for kids who learn better that way um, because we produced it for everybody. We produced it mostly with teachers and parents in mind, but it's still out there for anybody to read. But then there's this other form too. And I think, the, I think what gets overwhelming is when you start thinking, okay, so now I have to do everything three times in different mediums? Well, yeah, I mean, that can be really good, but maybe you don't have to do that. Maybe someone else can, uh, maybe, maybe you can draw other people into the project. I think that's one opportunity that's uh, really, really present, especially in the classroom, is that a lot of the time students love doing audiovisual projects, especially in groups. I know some of my most fun, like most fond memories, uh, my fondest memories, that's right, my fondest memories of high school and middle school are the video projects I did with friends when we were supposed to, you know, reenact a scene from Shakespeare or do a Spanish skit. And those are a lot of fun for kids and it can be a great way for them to learn and they often end up, you know, putting way more time into something like that because it's going to be shown to their classmates and they want it to look good. Um, whereas with something textual, they just don't really always see the point. And so, you know, if there's always opportunities to you know, ask other people to get involved and by asking you make them a part of something and being a part of something is a lot of fun. That's kind of what the internet is about and that extends back into real life actually. So uh, Diana, Lois asked a question in the chat. How do we as educators tap into this more since students are wanting to use more technologies? Is that Diane, is that one part of the answer is to look for ways to have the students actively participate? Definitely. I mean, I, I think that, uh, oh, I'm just looking at Ed's comment as well. Um, yeah, I, so so first Lois's comment, yes. I mean, the, the main thing is just figuring out how you as an educator are going to um, incorporate those um, finished projects into the classroom, but I mean, I don't think it's that productive for students to sit in the classroom with a laptop in front of them if they even if they even own one at the the elementary, middle, or high school level. Um, I think that they have a lot invested in thinking that it's going to be useful for them to have a laptop in front of them or into persuading you that it's going to be useful because you know the, it's great fun for them, but it's a really disappointing kind of fun. It's not. It's not a rewarding kind of fun to have your attention split a million different ways. The great thing about doing a video project or making, you know, making an image in Photoshop or even putting together, you know, a slide presentation um, outside of class is that it extends the learning process in an engaging way. It's immersive rather than distracting. It's really, really engaging to try to put together um, 
you know, a video, and usually kids can figure this out for themselves. It, it's not possible to always expect that of them, but anytime you offer the opportunity to um, satisfy a project in a number of different ways, like if, if kids want to do a video, they can do a video. If they want to do a presentation, they can do a presentation. Um, but just leaving the door open for multimedia things, some of the kids will take you up on it, and often you'll be really, really surprised at the quality of the output. Because in order for it to exist at all, they have to plan ahead, which is a key, you know, a key to learning anything is planning ahead and thinking ahead. Um, and if it's a group project, they have to make a time to get together, which means they're thinking about the material again, and then editing it. And all of this is in support of something that feels just kind of like a game. Um, so it's not, not every assignment can be making a video and just showing it to the class, but once a semester, I think that's a really, really great way to be impressed by the kids. I mean, this is, if this is the medium they're comfortable in or excited by, then by all means, that's the medium they should be learning in. Diana, are you planning to be a teacher? Is that what you said? Oh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm teaching assisting uh, a class right now. Maybe I'll be a teacher someday, but I'm, I'm fascinated by the teaching process. Alex, what about you? Uh, have you got any thoughts about where you're headed? Um, actually, I've always wanted to be a teacher. Uh, so when I was younger, I was like camp counselor for four or five years. Um, and I always wanted to be a high school teacher, but as soon as I entered college, um, I decided that I wanted to go for a PhD. So hopefully I'll be teaching in the university if I can succeed in those goals. So Alex, uh, am I right? So you're you're working on getting content behind each of these 13 categories in the book. If if I'm right, or even if I'm not, uh, it, the book is clearly divided into these specific areas: identities, dossiers, privacy, safety, creators, pirates, quality, overload, aggressors, innovators, learners, activists, and synthesis. Are there particular ones here that really resonate with you, where you feel a passion, or um, that you feel that you're contributing to the dialogue specifically in that area? For me, I think that the number one important slash my own favorite would be the creators one, just because um, as people moved online, there was a whole slew of new types of creations uh, with media, and you can eventually all clump that into just general culture. There's just been so much cultural production. Um, and it's not just culture for the United States. With the amazing thing about the internet is you can meet anyone from anywhere, and you can see what kind of music people are making uh, from halfway around the globe, or what their opinions are on such and such topic. Um, so I think that the internet just fosters um, a, a general sense of passion for creating new things. And as I was talking about before, because all these new technologies are getting simpler to use and access is being put out to more people, you see so much more creation, be it something like low cats, which is really easy. You just take 
text and a picture, and you're done. Um, or you see amazing short films being posted to YouTube. So creation has many different levels to it, but no matter what, there's so much more creation being done, especially for kids. Thanks, Alex. So, so Diana, if you take a historical perspective, um, which I'm sure you love to do, uh, two questions. One would be, is the Internet of historic importance the same way the printing press was? And then number two is, when Alex talks about creation and participation, is this in some ways, and I know this is a loaded question because you're going to know my feelings as I ask it, isn't this in some ways a return to participation? Meaning, you know, because of the advent of television and radio, we all became relatively passive consumers, but if you look back in history, within villages or communities, people participated more. Well, even though that's a loaded question, I will answer absolutely because I completely agree. Yes, I mean, I think that uh, it would be insane to think that uh, sitting and watching a television show is better or more edifying than trying to create your own mini two-minute television show series. I think that Alex makes a really great point, which is that it doesn't matter how great they are, great the creations are necessarily. It's that once you use tools to make something simple, now you know they're out there. And the next time you have an idea, you have much more of a sense that um, you can execute it. And you know, one of the major barriers to the motivation for creation in the past has just been that you know horrible feeling of like, well, if I make it, will anyone even watch it? Um, I remember as a little kid, I would like write these books, um, write these little books, and staple them together, and announce to my parents that I was setting up shop, and that you know they could come buy my books. And you know they might come by my book. They might like have given me a quarter for them, or or they might not have. But um, you know that was as far as my reach extended. My parents were the only ones who were going to pay me a quarter to read what I said. And what I think is so great about the internet is that now anytime I have an idea. Um, I have a sense that if I can make it and it's cool, then there's a group of people um, that might might feel like paying attention to it. And the built-in um, friend groups I have on Facebook and Twitter and um, my blog really make it so that you know I, I feel encouraged in encouraged to create just by my experience and the experiences in the past when anything I make is something that people I respect respond to. And you know, kids, whether they you know, whether they're participating in fan fiction communities or in little circles of, you know, YouTube videos that respond to each other or just posting on online message boards, I think it's so positive to um, be to know or have the sense that if you do something, someone else is going to care about it. And money doesn't have to be part of the equation at all. Um, so I think that that's one of the, the greatest things that can come out of this 
you know, new um, low barrier to entry society. I don't think we should be concerned at all that not everything is great because um, Dave Weinberger, in conversation with Andrew Keene a few years ago in the Wall Street Journal, made this point that, you know, talent has always been, uh, you know, great talent has always been scarce. Um, perhaps, but talent also isn't something you're just born with, just like you're not born with the ability to use a keyboard at 100 words per minute. These are all things you learn, and it just depends on how early you learn them and how embedded they become in your habits and practices and expectations for what the world should be like. So Diana, from your perspective as a student studying history, how big a deal is this? I mean, is this, does this rival the thinking press in terms of the potential cultural changes that are taking place? Well, I think that the, the thing about the printing press is that you get um, high reproducibility, uh, but each of those reproductions is still very costly. So in that sense, I think that here, where you get infinite re reproducibility and the cost of each reproduction is zero, yeah, I mean, that's a huge shift. That's a huge economic shift. That, that changes the entire dynamics of um, the production of anything that can be transmitted um, digitally. So I mean, the, there are still lots of things that can be transmitted that way, of course. And there is a kind of poverty of experience that comes from uh, you know, experiencing everything on this flat, two-dimensional glowing screen. I totally get that. I mean, that's, there's a reason why I study a field where I get to still play with old books and magazines and everything. But the thing is that that's, uh, that's, a, ta you know, that's a, a matter of taste. Um, and I developed that taste at the same time as I was developing my addiction to instant messenger, which I consequently kicked, and then developed, you know, a fascination with something else. So, I mean, going back to your question about the, the magnitude of this, yeah, sure. Like, I think that this is um, tremendous because never have the means of reproduction and distribution been in every single person with a computer's hands. The issue is that much as the printing press was, you know, a barrier to entry a long, you know, a long time ago, not everyone had a printing press. Maybe a couple people in town had a printing press. And if they wanted to print something, they could print whatever they wanted. Um, if they wanted to print invitations to their dinner party, they could print those on the printing press. If they wanted to print a pamphlet or a screed, they could print that as well. Um, so what we have today is that there's this illusion, especially in places like, you know, uh, College Boston, um, where, you know, everyone, oh, oh, everyone has the means of production and distribution. But no, I mean, as we were talking about earlier, that's really, really not true. And it's sort of the same deal where, you know, one person in the town has a printing press, except that now we're talking about sort of a, a global village where only one out of every so many kids or even adults has access to the means of production and distribution and isn't even aware that this is not a regular thing. Um, so yeah, technological elite, definitely. I mean, but the, the issue is that the technological elite, as you say, um, get caught in self-referential circles, and if if their main forum is one that only exists on a computer, they're only going to register productions that come to them through that medium. Um, so I mean, not that, not that kids have always been, have ever been super globally aware and concerned and everything, and I certainly think that 
um, the Internet actually offers opportunities for that to improve. But I just think it's something we really need to keep in mind. That's one reason why um, I have a, a huge amount of respect and hope for projects like One Laptop Per Child because no, like te technology doesn't solve everything. But um, it is a very major tool and it's one of the best tools for information. And if you know the right thing, knowing the right thing at the right time or getting the right message out at the right time can make all the difference in the world um, to a person or situation or um, a course of events. So I think that um, I, I'm not expecting one laptop per child to, you know, actually on its own make sure that every single child in the world has his own laptop. But I think it's definitely asking the right questions and working on along the right lines. Thanks, Diana. So Alex, uh, are there things that you see where you think the world's going to change because of these technologies? Where your particular vision of the future is that there's there's some change coming uh, that, that we should be thinking about at this point. That is also a very difficult question. <laughs> I would probably say that the trend that we're seeing now online uh, that will take us the next step further is that socialization is becoming the biggest factor. Um, when you saw what people call Web 1.0, it was mainly just information. Um, and Web 2.0, quote unquote, ended up being people connected with that information and then taking that information and connecting it with, uh, with other people. So when, when you see social networks evolve, uh, yeah, it's very fun to play around with them and you can meet your friends or whatever, but we never saw as much social interaction as has been happening in the past three, four, or five years. Um, Beyond that, though, I'm not really sure what's coming next. Um, there's just so much debate right now about whether the Internet is really the future. Um, clearly, things are moving to digital mediums. You have the Kindle, you have newspapers freaking out because they're losing revenue, especially with the economy now. No one's really sure what's going to happen when things cost money versus when you can just put things online for free. Um, so. It's, it's really hard to say what the next step is going to be. Uh, it seems like the, the hope uh, is that once we start seeing more things like, like the iPhone, where you have portable devices, where you can bring around the internet and the interactivity between the technology and the person uh, it exceeds the level that it does now. Uh, that it's not that technology will be integrated with the person, but it will be integrated with the life. But more mobility will occur, and socialization won't be just people sitting at their computers. It will be moving around, actually talking to people. Uh, so when we when we started with film, which was probably the biggest. Um, technological medium at first. You just have people sitting in a movie theater 
you go to television, people sitting at home, even though they're sitting with other people, and they can actually converse in like a movie theater where it's pretty much you being sociable, but still by yourself. Um, so then you move to a TV, then you move to a computer, where you're socializing directly with another person, but at the same time you're by yourself. So I think that once we reach a level of socialization where the technology doesn't limit us uh, to just sitting around and not actually physically interacting with people, then that will be such a significant improvement in the world. And uh, yeah, I'd definitely love to see that happen. I'm not sure if it will. I mean, you see a lot of push now for tablet PCs or uh, just web browsers that you can carry around in your pocket. Um, but I think it'd be very cool if you could say, hey, like I want to throw you this website that I just found, and the person sitting right next to you instead of uh, in their own house. Uh, so yeah, I have no idea what's going to happen, but there's just so much possibility out there that anything that comes up, I think it's going to be really cool anyway. So I think that both of you would uh, love what's taking place at some of these educational technology conferences because we're holding sort of all-day unconferences where we're just together uh, learning through the technologies in, in very much the way you described. So we're going to have to get you to one of these. Um, there's one I hold each year uh, called EduBloggerCon and uh, I'll send you information about it, but um, I don't have an expectation you'd actually come, but I think you would love what's taking place there, Alex. Diana, Alex said that Creators was his touchstone uh, category. Do you have a category or categories from the book that you really feel are, are ones that you either particularly contributed to or really care about? Have to, I mean, I, all the categories have sort of collapsed in my mind into this one, you know, this big mass of them. So I might have to look at the list. But um, yeah, I mean, I, creators is very important to me. And I think that um, partly that's because what I see among my friends, especially at school here, um, I go to Harvard and um, a lot, you know, all my, all my friends here and elsewhere um, have this huge sense of like, we made it, you know, we, we, we turned out all right. Um, I'm still kind of amazed I turned out all right with all the time I spent on instant messaging as a teenager. But then again, I type really, really fast now. Um, and I don't, you know, I, I don't use instant messaging anymore. So clearly, um, you know, there's a time and a place in my life for that. And it, got me a really, really valuable skill. I'm not sure I would have learned to type as well if I hadn't had a compelling social reason to do so. Um, and so, you know, I think that I, I'm just really, really happy. I, I'm always hoping to get the word out about how, how many great things have come out of technology and and not not unduly exposing my life on the internet. But I mean, one of the really exciting things that happened to me last year is that I started writing about this business school program on my blog. It had just started. And um, since there weren't any articles about it, um, I I wrote you know, I wrote this blog post and it rose to the top of the Google rankings instantly. And it was so high in the Google rankings that um, the directors of the program itself 
uh, ended up finding my blog post, uh, reading my blog every every day. And by the time I actually got an interview for the program, um, they already knew. You know, they they knew what my interests were. They knew about what kind of writer I was, and they were really really excited to meet the person behind um, this this sort of online personality. And that was so incredible to me because I know that's just one example um, and that not every kid is going to have that same experience. And of course if I had written anything embarrassing or incriminating it could have been really horrible. But I didn't and it was great instead. And I think that's the thing is that uh, the Internet just it accelerates serendipity. Um, and increases the probability of serendipitous things happening. And so if you put most of the positive things out there, then most of the serendipity is probably going to be positive. If you put negative things on the Internet or you know, embarrassing things, um, then that's probably going to come back to you too. But there's nothing inherent in the medium that makes um, that makes it bad or good. It just is an accelerator for a lot of other things. And that was one of the meta points of the book that I really value. Um, because John and Earth take this very sober approach to something that's often treated with alarmism, which is that, you know, this is not this is not actually a new, weird, crazy frontier. This is the real world made faster and bigger. And so bullying um, and you know meanness and uh, incorrect grammar are still going to be there, and they may be more permanent and they may be more likely to happen. Um, but they're not, you know, these aren't new things. And the internet can hold everything, positive and negative. And it's important to um, not be scared off from this amazing sort of realm of intensified opportunity just because bad things happen there because bad things happen everywhere. So if you know with I heard a great analogy earlier today that uh, you know the internet's really just like a big city. Uh, it has way more exciting things um, than a small town. It has way more um, way more can happen there. Um, but also because there's so many people, you're going to get a much more intensive sort of meeting of minds. Um, and people make that trade-off all the time, moving between the city and um, the suburbs, making trade-offs for safety, making trade-offs for um, for excitement and opportunity, and that's a series of trade-offs that each person has to decide on for themselves. And what what kids need and and really want is guidance on which trade-offs to make, how to make them, and um, what the potential gains and losses really are. And that's what Born Digital provides. So I, I love the phrase in the book, and I'm not actually sure it appeared exactly this way, but it became sort of my phrase in reading the book of digital tattoos. Now, Alex, are there any, do you have any digital tattoos that you wish you didn't, and have you had to go back and try and get rid of them? Um, if I have any, I hope they're not there anymore. <laughs> um, I, no, I mean, I've been pretty conscious about my identity online ever since I was younger. Um, and as, as it's explained in the book, I'm pretty sure it's the very first chapter, uh, when kids interact online, 
it's not just one identity that they have. There's just an entire multitude of colors, different shades of themselves. And it's directed at different people sometimes, uh, different communities, or just depending on how they perceive themselves, it can change over time. And that's just true for anyone, uh, whether or not they're online. Um, when I was younger, uh, I had a multitude of screen names uh, that probably don't mean anything now. Um, but at the same time, I was always conscious that what I was doing was something that reflected who I was. So I wasn't going to make a stupid decision and then regret it later. Um, of course, there I, I did have some bad relationships with some people uh, online, but nothing that would ultimately reflect uh, something like a Facebook photo that would that would not get me a job. Um, and I'm actually kind of at odds with the fact that companies are now looking uh, and trying to espy the tiniest little infractions uh, on kids. I mean, it's, it's not as pervasive as it seems to be, uh, as the media's uh, really exacerbating it. It's just overblown, but it does happen, and you can't deny that it's happening. But I think that for me, it doesn't it's not that big of a deal because you really just need common sense when you're portraying yourself to other people. Um, and if you're not going to do that, then, well, there are certain consequences. Uh, you, if you're going to be the fool, then you're going to be the fool. That's really interesting, Alex. I had an experience this year. So I graduated from high school in 1979. And, I mean, it was even hard to you know, take regular photographs, and we were very careful about only taking a few, and you'd take them at one event and then another, and then you'd get your film developed once a month. But, uh, you know, I had a friend from high school post a photograph of me. It wasn't terrible, but it was a you know, less than flattering moment in my life. And I struggled, you know, do I ask him to take it down? Do I, you know, what do I do? Uh, you know, how do we deal with this issue of other people being able to put up content about us that we're not really in control of. There's definitely a conflict between how you have to deal with your own persona online and, of course, how other people are going to influence that. Um, what I can immediately say is that technically you, in most cases, uh, you you own the right to certain uh, certain aspects of your personal identity, so you can easily just ask someone to take it down. And yeah, it can be embarrassing at times, um, but it all depends on there's, there's a certain ethics online that isn't readily apparent still, I don't think, and it definitely started to uh, be thought about as piracy became a big issue. Uh, with, with kids growing up. Um, so, in terms of other people kind of making an identity for you, it, there's, there's a line there that you can't really draw just because it's, it's not something that the law can really 
tackle right now, but there, there are certain moral issues at stake that it's just a, a, a personal a, a personal thing that you have to deal with. So we're almost at the end of the hour, and um, I promised you it's just an hour. As tempting as it is to continue my questions, uh, I want to be sensitive to your time. Um, those of you who have been in the audience, and we really appreciate your attending, is there anybody that would like to ask a question of Alex or Diana before we go? You can raise your hand if you'd like to, and uh, I'll give you the mic, or you can ask it in the chat. Okay, and I don't think we're going to touch that question tonight. <laughs> um, Alex and Diana, you've been terrific. Uh, I, I will tell you that I've thoroughly enjoyed the, the interview and really appreciate it that you've taken the time to do this. Uh, it has been recorded. Uh, we're going to put it up, and I'm, I'm sure others will, will enjoy listening to it as much as we have. Um, thanks for your contributions to the book. Thanks for being here tonight, and thanks for being uh, such uh, fine examples of, of thoughtful students who are negotiating and navigating these waters with us. Uh, so good, great thanks to KnowledgeWorks for funding this interview series and for support from Illuminate. Uh, thanks to you uh, for attending, those of you who are here tonight for being together. Um, and we'll look forward to future discussions. Uh, Alex and Diana, you're both invited to come back at some point in time if you would enjoy doing so and giving us a future report. I promise to send you, especially Alex, a link to the EduBlogger cons and the tech events taking place. I think you find it very interesting. And we'll look forward to, to seeing you online again. Thanks so much, Steve. And thanks, everybody. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks, everyone. Have a good night. Thank <laughs> you.